Hey guys, well, last week we did a, a quick introduction to the book of Philippians, a letter written by uh, the early church missionary, uh, Paul, to a church in the town of Philippi in ancient Greece. And uh, my beautiful wife read through the entire book for us in one sitting in a fashion actually similar to what the first hearers of this letter would have experienced, sitting together as those who love Jesus, as those who love their friend Paul, wondering how he was doing while he was sitting in a prison and awaiting uh, his great words of encouragement, and they're not let down. As I mentioned last week, the church in Philippi was surrounded by a society that, that thought very highly of itself. Philippi was like, was like Rome's little brother. Uh, they looked like, sounded like, tried to copy the mannerisms and culture of Rome. And so to speak of humility was not natural for a citizen of Philippi. It was derogatory, in fact. It was to put somebody down. Humility was definitely not something to be pursued. And so to be a church that followed a crucified Jesus and, and a church that was called to be like him was, was a real challenge. The church in Philippi was, was sent one of their, uh, they sent one of their favorite people to Paul while he was in prison, someone named Epaphroditus, to bring him what, what seems like a financial gift, it seems like. And Paul re- then writes this letter to give to Epaphroditus uh, as he goes back to the church in Philippi as a thank you, but also as an encouragement to keep up the good work of the gospel by finding their collective strength and joy in Christ. So today, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 26 of this letter. So if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them and open them up to Philippians chapter 1. And if you want to go to cachurch.info, under sermons, you can find uh, the sermon notes under Town Center. So just a heads up for those of you who, who actually pay attention to the version of the Bible that I often preach out of. Uh, during this series, I'm going to be preaching out of the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, I have my personal reasons for that. And if you want to know what those are, you can, you can check in with me. Uh, but the quick version is that uh, I think the NIV uses the best language when it comes to describing the united community uh, of the church in, in Philippi uh, and in Philippians, as well as the important language of being in Christ and associated with Christ. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 26 today, but, but just uh, to grab the heart of Paul as we jump into this, this text, we're going to start by reading verses 20 to 26. Philippians 1, 20 to 26. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to, give on, to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Man, we see what what made Paul tick. What made it so Paul could not be shut down, silenced, broken, his joy stolen? See, the first century had a cancel culture just like we do, but it wasn't a bunch of angry people hiding behind their computers. It was made up of Roman power, societal pressure, beatings and imprisonment, and oh, by the way, crucifixion. What made it so that Paul would, would, would speak of joy in the midst of the persecution that he faced? sing songs while in prison, and not even songs of lament. <laughs> there were times in Scripture where, where, where there were songs of lament, but Paul didn't even see prison as a reason to lament. Saw no reason to cry out to God, God, why have you forsaken me? Because Paul's joy was not chained to the circumstance or, or, or to comparison, but it was formed and lived out in Christ. 
And our joy is not chained to circumstance or comparison, but is formed in and lived out in Christ. Paul does not find his joy in circumstance. He he starts his letter by calling himself and Timothy, one of his his partners in ministry, they call themselves servants, literally slaves. It says in verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, but that word is literally slaves, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, the leaders of the church. So he's quick to place himself low and those he writes to high. I'm nothing but a slave, nothing but a servant, and you are the chosen holy people of God. Now, often Paul would start his letters by reminding his readers that he was an apostle, someone of authority, but in this case, he wants to set a tone for a letter that will be emphasizing the humility of of Christ. And we'll we'll even hear of Christ referred to as a slave, as a servant in chapter two. But Paul clarifies from the very beginning that he belongs fully to Christ. If If there's anything that slavery proclaims, it's that you don't belong to yourself. Now, Slavery was, a, was taken for granted in Paul's day, as taken for granted as electrical appliances are in our, to, in our day to get things done. It was everywhere. And as a, as a slave in the first century, you could have high status, but the bottom line was that you still belonged to somebody. It is not a claim one made of themselves if they did not have to. But Paul willingly says, I am owned by Christ. Now, we don't like the language for many reasons, proper reasons of of slavery. Slavery is evil, degrading. It's the lessening of an individual to an object. Paul's willingness to give himself over to slavery is a strange and maybe even vulgar idea. And not just today, but 2,000 years ago as well. But this, this willing servanthood that we'll see means that he cannot be a slave to anything else. He already belongs to Jesus. Nothing else owns him. In typical counterintuitiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all other slavery means humiliation, but this slavery actually means life. Throughout Paul's ministry, you get a sense that he just doesn't care about the stuff that he's supposed to care about, that the world says he better care about. And so almost any time Paul is confronted with questions of being wronged or, or not getting recognition or what's it like in prison, you get a sense of Paul kind of saying, I don't care, I got Jesus. Paul, don't, don't you want to see, don't you want to be seen as an, as an apostle? If it helps the gospel. Paul, you're in prison. Haven't you lost your purpose, your sense of call now that you're in prison? Paul would say, how limited do you think the gospel is? No, I, I'm still in Christ. My life is in him, not in my call. This kind of understanding that, that, that Paul had, that his, his entire being was all wound up in Jesus, made him unoffendable and untouchable. Dallas Willard, wonderful Christian philosopher who passed just a few years ago, he was once asked what he would say is the defining characteristic of a mature Christian, and he said the ability to be unoffendable. We become undefendable when we stop being slaves to our circumstances, stop being slaves to the day, to social media, the current news, the opinion of others. When we, when we stop being slaves to shame and to guilt, these are, these are horrible taskmasters. But when none of of these are allowed to own us, we find freedom and joy. And the way they are removed from their throne is by decentralizing them and finding our lives and our center in Christ. That is where Christian joy is found. Paul says in verses two to six, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful greeting. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out 
carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Paul loves the word joy, or in Greek, chara. It's it's, it's a, the golden thread that runs throughout Philippians. Paul mentions joy or rejoicing 16 times in, in these four chapters of Philippians. And what brings him joy is the fact that even when he is in prison, the gospel is not stuck there with him. In the same way, I know that the words that, that I say to you each week do not stay in your living room or on your computer. Paul's joy is found not in his circumstance or well-being, but in what God is doing uh, in him in him, even while in prison, and in what God is doing outside the prison by the good work of the church. I'll tell you, nothing brings a pastor more joy than seeing Christ embodied by the local church, the church actively being the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus. And Paul sees this in Philippi, and so his joy is is not imprisoned. True joy cannot be chained to circumstance or comparison. And because of that, Paul looked crazy to the world. He, he promoted a crucified, humbled God, and he found joy in seemingly joyless situations. It was counterintuitive to the world and an affront to the message of the world that claimed to offer and have a claim to all that brought joy. And it has always been the case that joy in Christ looks crazy to a world that tries to pin your joy to an object or a circumstance. Yet Paul's joy hasn't even hit its limit yet. Paul's joy is fundamentally in belonging to Jesus, but there's one more thing that makes his joy grow, seeing more people find their joy in Jesus. He is excited to see that God is what God is doing and will continue to do until the day of Christ's return, not just in the church in Philippi, but through the church in Philippi. He says in verse seven, it's right for me to be full of joy. Even in prison, I'm full of joy. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my hearts. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. You're doing the work with me. My joy cannot be chained because the gospel is not chained and silenced in this prison because you are continuing the work in my absence. You are my partners in this important work. And so he goes on to explode into a prayer in verse nine. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and what may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So continue to grow in the truth of Christ, the freedom, the joy that comes from knowing him. Dive deeper and deeper into it. That's Paul's prayer. Well, how does this happen? Well, it doesn't happen individually. As I've mentioned before, uh, this letter and, and Paul's letters are written to a community. Joy grows and is experienced in community. Now, I've mentioned this before, but we miss out in English because unlike many other languages, we don't have a plural version of the word you. Like say Spanish with usted and ustedes. Usted being singular, ustedes being plural, a version of the word you. But when Paul says you in this text and almost every other text that he writes to churches, he is talking to the collective you of the church community. Well, what does he mean? Love will not abound more and more. Knowledge and insight will not grow. We will not become filled with the fruit of righteousness as individuals. They are meant to be experienced and grown in the soil of community. Often what we would call a weak faith or doubt is very often a result of not living out our faith in community, but trying to cultivate it in private. That has never been the route to joy and a fuller life in Christ. 
But the church is called a community to pursue and nurture a joy that is found in and lived out in Christ together. It, it's this community, we, we learn more and more that, that our joy is not and cannot ever be fully chained to circumstances and comparison. We learn that together. Our joy is formed in and lived out in Christ. That's the second thing we learn from Paul. While in prison, Paul is full of joy. Why? Because like any preacher, he loves an audience that cannot escape. Paul is surrounded by prisoners and guards and anyone with an earshot, it, it's their job to keep an eye on him so they can't leave. And Paul is like, perfect, captive audience, literally. He is pumped because being in chains has given him opportunity to preach to, to those he would never have had a chance to speak to. He says in verse 13, as a result of me being in prison in chains, it's, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And this seems to have caused other Christians to say, man, if, if Paul can do this while in chains with, with this kind of joy, we can do this. We can do this too. If Paul can willingly give up all that gave him a, a religious reputation and still find joy in Christ sitting in a prison, so can I. That, that is why later in the letter, Paul will say, look at my example and imitate me as I imitate Christ. And they're going to do that. Verse 14 says, and because of my change, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. They, they've, gra they've grabbed courage from Paul's example. And so you can imagine this only adds more to Paul's joy. He loves this. However, it seems like there's also another group here. While Paul was in prison, it seems as though there were some people on the outside who had crooked motives. And it almost seems like Paul isn't even sure what their motives are. But he says in verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, uh, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does that matter, he says. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So it seems like, uh, we're not sure what exactly is going on. The theologians don't really know, but it seems like some maybe see an opportunity. Paul has been, Paul had some clout in the church and maybe with him in prison, they see a space to be filled, not necessarily because they love Jesus, but because they love the limelight. And again, Paul would say, people would say to Paul, aren't you ticked? Paul, doesn't this make your blood boil? And Paul continues with his holy, his holy I don't care attitude that cannot be knocked down. Are more pe people hearing the gospel? Then, that, then that's fantastic. Verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. That's all I care about. And because of that, I rejoice. I have joy. And I'll continue to rejoice. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what. I need to hear from Paul here. Many pastors today do. Do. Comparison of preachers is so easy today. Social media, online sermon series, podcast books, high follows on social media, influencers. I have, it has never been easier to envy and compare as a pastor. And, 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 and what, is that, what does that move us to? Often judging, judging motives or, or, or copying out of envy. When the soul uh, starts being questioned, uh, we start talking about how many people are in their church, how many followers do they have, how expensive are their shoes, what are their motives? 
Because every pastor has mixed motives. One of my personal goals is to be cheered by the congregation and carried out on their shoulders at the end of a, a service, but that hasn't happened yet. But the important question should be, are they preaching the gospel of Jesus? Are people being welcomed into Christ? And if that is being done, praise God and may God deal with the rest. Paul's life, his joy is so much deeper than that. So much deeper than comparison and circumstance. And here we see why Paul can say all these things. This is what this is coming to. Why he finds his joy even in the midst of prison. Finds joy that the gospel is still going forward. Isn't concerned about comparing himself with other ministers, other proclaimers of the gospel. Sitting in a prison, he finds his joy in Christ. And not a joy that's limited to, to blessings or health or situation, but a joy that is found in the only thing that can never truly be taken from him. And isn't that the secret to joy? The problem is that everything you and I are promised to, to bring us joy is in danger of disappearing. Relationships are always in danger of disappearing. Jobs are always in danger of disappearing. Breathing in and out without a mask is always in danger, always threatened. But Paul is in Christ, that's where he finds his identity. Nothing can take that. Death tried and failed. And so all Paul wants is more Jesus. The last couple verses here, starting at verse 20, says this. It says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul has a foot uh, one foot on earth and one in heaven, and it changes how he sees everything, how he sees his relationship and his, his service to others, his connection to the church, his life in prison. He is, he's doing battle here, a, a little unsure of what the next day and years will bring. But either way, if he lives, he lives for Christ. If he dies, it's only a win. Did you see why the message of the gospel, especially lived out in humility and in Christ, is so subversive? What a frustrated world faith creates. When one finds himself in Christ, they will notice that the, the world has a hard time finding their pressure points. The threats of the world lose their power because when our life is found in Christ, the only possession that we cannot live without can never truly be threatened. Because when our life is caught up in Jesus, we can't be pushed in any area of life and told to conform or we'll take this away from you. Why? Because everything we are, everything we desire, everything our future is built on is in Christ. And he is our indestructible hope and therefore our indestructible joy. That's what Paul understood. Well, Paul, you, he would be threatened all the time. Paul, you, you better stop talking about Jesus or we're going to throw you in prison in Rome. Great. I wanted to take the gospel to Rome, and now you're going to take care of all the travel expenses. I'll talk to the guards. I'll sing some hymns, and I'll, I'll keep the gospel moving. Plus, I know that the church in Philippi is, is still going to be delivering the gospel here and, and the other churches that I've worked with, so that's fine. Paul, you better stop talking about Jesus, or we're going to beat you, and we're going to, we're going to threaten your life. Oh, thanks, guys. What a great privilege to suffer for Jesus and be made more like him. What a privilege. Paul, you, be, you better stop talking about Jesus, or we're going to kill you. Ah. Guys, you don't get it. To die is gain. To see my Savior face to face, the very aim of my entire life, my hope and my joy. You see how Paul and Christians would frustrate the world? 
You see what the power of joy found in Christ and Christ alone does? It changes your life. It changes families and church communities and, and then their surrounding communities with a humility and a hope that is unbreakable. And it saves us from being chained to circumstance and to comparison that says, if I have that, I can have joy. All other sources of joy will change and disappear. Only Christ remains. Church, be encouraged and, and rejoice. I will say it again. Rejoice that your hope and your joy is unfading. Lean into Jesus this week. In prayer, in humility, ask for more of him, the source of unfathomable hope and indestructible joy. We're going to unpack more of this throughout this series. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your amazing example of humility. And what a strange concept that it's through humility, it's through a giving up of our rights that we can actually find more joy. By a giving up of our, ourselves, we make space for more of you, Jesus. So today, I pray that if there are things that we have been pursuing that the world has, has put in front of us that, that, that promises joy, we would have a perspective that reminds us that many of these things are fleeting and fading, but the, the unbreakable eternal joy is found in you, Jesus. Forgive us for pursuing other things, other finite things, and I pray you would give us eyes for you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Church, I love you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. And may he give you his eternal peace. Amen. <laughs>